as the addition that can make any meal an occasion. Out of strange little crystal plants. The sure-to-be-appreciated offerings your guests when you entertain. But that's only part of the story. You know, telephones are funny things. So let's get that ball rolling. Well, all right. Paris, you want? Paris has got to be. Uh, hello and welcome to the Truth and Soul podcast, New Zealand advertising podcast. And today we're we're stretching that um, just a little bit um, because I'm talking to Jason Paris, who I originally met when he worked for McDonald's in a marketing role, and since then he has uh, his career has taken off to the heights of current CEO of Vodafone New Zealand, which is a big job without a doubt. How many employees? Uh, 2,000 directly, another 3,000 through partnerships and contractors. That, um, big, yeah, a lot of people. Uh, that is a lot of people. So I'm um, hoping to talk to what well, I'm going to talk to, but hopefully the subjects we'll, we'll cover include you know, how Jason um, skyrocketed from marketing into the, the CEO stratosphere of one of New Zealand's biggest companies. And I have a, a list of listener questions. Oh, do you? Uh, yes. Uh, um, when so I was at McDonald's, my title was adult marketing manager, which was the worst job title I've ever had. I had to explain to myself that McDonald's was still family friendly and hadn't diversified. Uh, and, that, and that was because it was um, adults and kids. Correct. Uh, now, if if we could go back uh, even further uh, to, to get a bit of background, you come originally from Invercargill. Very proud Southlander still. My mum uh, is down there. She's a meat inspector at Alliance Freezing Works yeah. today, think, hoping to retire when she turns 65 next year. She's had me when she's 17, so she's quite a young mum and young grandmother. Uh, and and uh, your father left quite young, is that right? You didn't know him, actually. Didn't know him. I only found um, my mum kept me in touch with his side of the family, but... He never came back, actually, yeah. which, you know, I don't know, as a 19-year-old who had a kid, you know, you're going through just different stuff, and he never came back. But he unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago, and um, I went to his funeral. I found out about it and yeah. uh, paid my respects and found out there um, Naitahu connections, actually, which I'd never right. uh, known about until a couple of years ago, which was fascinating. So, uh, yeah, whole nother, that's a whole other story. So how how... I mean, it, it must have affected your early life quite a lot, I guess. Didn't feel like it. Yeah. I had very supportive grandparents, uh, an uncle who right. was amazing. Uh, my mum was absolutely incredible. I never, you know, it was state housing, moved quite a lot. Mum had to work to, Yeah. she was on the social benefit when I first started, you know, um, when I grew up. And then she worked and went to the freezing works at quite a young age, but I never found that I missed anything. A lot of love in my family and environment. Because you had a good, a good support group far now, wider. Yeah, no, absolutely. And mum sacrificed a lot to give me the opportunities. So I never, like, no, we didn't have a lot, but I didn't feel like I missed out on anything. So you, you must have been incredibly close with your mum. Yeah, very I'm, close. I'm guessing, but, um, which is cool. So yeah. you, went, you went to school down there? Yeah, all of my kindergarten, my primary school, my intermediate and my high school no longer exist. Yeah. Though, so which is a shame because I don't have any of that heritage. I have to go drive my children around in Bacargill and go, that was where I was at kindergarten and that was my intermediate, but now it's a 
Southland Girls High School, and that was Cargill, which was my high school, and now it's a Māori Development Education Centre. Yeah. So it's a shame, actually, that none of the schools I went to uh, exist, but it still doesn't take anything away from Southland still being home. And it was a good place to grow up, Invercargill? Brilliant. <laughs> Regional lifestyle was amazing. Like, full of sports, friends, a lot of cards uh, growing up. and um, 500? Oh, poker. 500. Was that because of the weather? So you had to stay inside? <laughs> no, it was, uh, I don't know, it was just the game of choice. I was, you know, brought up um, playing euchre at a young age. Yeah. That was what my grandparents used to play. And then 500, more of an advanced version of, uh, of euchre. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, big card player. Okay, I'll, I'll be uh, uh, forewarned about that. And so how were you at school? Um, I tried hard. I was always wanting to please uh, my teachers and um, and make mum proud. Yeah. Probably up until about fifth form, actually, where... You discovered girls. Yeah, got a bit, yeah. you know, that kind of too cool for school type yeah. thing and... Um, made the first 15 at fifth form, so I was quite early, uh, yeah. and discovered, you know, beer, girls, yeah. um, and probably lost my way a little bit in, uh, in sixth and, and seventh form from a school perspective. I was also quite, I, I used to challenge my teachers a lot, uh, in asking them how, what they were teaching me or us was practically relevant to life outside of school. And... Uh, most struggled to explain, uh, apart from my economics teacher, actually, and show how that would be practically applicable to the situation in life or developing your career or helping you make a decision. Yes, I, I think it's interesting. If you look, look back at, at the things that are taught at school, there's a couple of subjects that I really think should be taught at school which aren't, which are... One of which is personal finance and mm. the other which is relationships, which are two massively important parts of of anyone's life and yet you have no education other than hopefully from your parents and I agree with you I know there's um another part which you know be close to your heart which is um fishing encouraging. <laughs> fishing I was gonna say creativity there's a famous like you've you know you have heard this and I'm I'm repeating something that everyone already knows but there is a famous story I don't even know if it's true but Tim Finn goes into a class of five-year-olds and asks them who is an artist who's a musician, who's a great explorer, and 100% of the five-year-olds put their hands up. And then he goes to a class of 12-year-olds uh, next door and asks them, who's an artist, who's a singer, who's an explorer, and about three people put their hand up. So what is it that school does that convinces you that you're no longer creative, that you're no longer musical, that you, um, I don't know, there's something... Something slightly odd about that, where it forces you to conform more into a rhythm of behaviour and learning that is structured, and everyone should be the same. I don't know. It, it would be it would be nice to think that school taught you taught everyone the same. And the way that Picasso would say about pictures, at first you have to learn to yeah. paint, and then you can paint in an extraordinary fashion. Yes, and, and with school, once you've You've got the the basics, and I think there could you know extended debate about what the the use of various subjects. But mm. once you have them and you have that behind you, then you can go off. It's a good. I think that's a good approach. Actually, you need to hit the foundation to be able to launch from. I get that. Yeah, but I think I think maths is gets far more complicated 
than is necessary yep. for, for um, at a very early jobs. stage. My son's doing um, his exams, and uh, man, I tell you what, in third form, it's more advanced than I think I was doing in seventh form. Maybe that's reflective of Invercargill, but it uh, was um, it, like seriously, I'm trying to still, I'm his maths and science helper, and my wife is his like Spanish and English and etc. And I've got a YouTube to yeah. try and find out, you know, the advanced algebra he's doing nowadays. Why is he learning Spanish? Uh, well, because he's got a um, Argentinian uh, auntie, and uh, I think he's hoping to go for a gap year in BA. Yeah. It, it, it's uh, In England, everybody learns French, which is kind of handy if you go to France, but not really much use to go anywhere else. With Spanish, you've got large. You do. Large number of places to go. Yeah. So you left school with reasonable qualifications? Well, not really. I finished yeah. school. I think I got a B. Oh, you left school. Yeah, I left there. school. Yeah. I, fin- I, I um, got a B bursary. I actually applied uh, in seventh form. I applied to go to teacher's training college and got declined, got turned down. Uh, I'm not sure why now <laughs> because my grades were okay. Yeah. Um, and that's actually from a young age I wanted to be a teacher. And, um, why? But, um, I don't know. I just, it was something that I just felt. It wasn't just falling into a job that, that, so no, you had a, a desire to yeah, help people. Yeah, help. Yeah. Um, so, and that didn't happen. But um, luckily, I was playing rugby at age group level for Southland. And um, my rugby manager was the manager of Trustbank Southland. And uh, on the way back from the West Coast on our um, bus, he said, have you ever thought about a career in banking? And so offered me a kind of a junior opportunity to, you know, apply for a junior role at Trust Bank. And so my first couple of years were in, was in banking, actually looking at working in tellers and customer services and checkbooks, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but you decided banking wasn't for you. It was... No, I... Because um, it was quite limiting, I guess. Well, no, I, I, when I was on tellers, all these people would come in and... Uh, getting money out of their bank account and they were earning a lot more money than I was. Mm. And um, one of those that caught my eye were radio salespeople. I thought that sounded like a pretty cool job and they were all pretty fun and energetic and creative. So, um, so you did that? So I went into radio. I, yeah, I, I went into radio sales. I was a radio salesman for 4ZA in Invercargill. So it was like classic hits and Newstalk ZB and all that in the day. Yeah. And then progressively just moved north, went from radio and then got a gig after a number of years actually working for Saturn Communications in Wellington, which was, that was my first kind of entry into marketing. They needed someone to sell television advertising in Wellington, but also be the sales and marketing manager. And so that was my first kind of opportunity to do sales and marketing at the same time. And then you went up to- Met met my wife when I was living in Wellington and she's an Aucklander. We met in Queenstown and the- um, the Millennium, two thousand, which I think when I met her, I would, was probably like Millennium, and uh, you know on New Year's Eve. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, met. Wait, wait, you actually met on New Year's Eve in two thousand, which means it's wow. really good for anniversaries. <laughs> and when we first met, <laughs> so I can just go back twenty-one years. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and then I moved to Auckland to follow her, and you got a job. Yes, on my um, McDonald's. How did how did that come about? Because uh, McDonald, from my experience, they are very um, an extraordinarily um, focused and professional marketing organisation. Which dare I say, it is 
quite a, you know, a rarity in New Zealand, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but they're, they're you know, hugely structured uh, and not, not generally the kind of organisation that takes a flyer. Yeah, correct. Uh, but, but somebody spotted that. So Ian Sutcliffe, who's a really good mate of mine still today, yeah. is the marketing director. And he gave me the opportunity and genuinely changed my life, I think. Uh, and he chose to appoint someone um, with enthusiasm over ability at that point, I'd say. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think that's, that's uh, very important, something that I've always lacked either of. But, um, <laughs> okay, so it's important. But, but do you, so you applied for it? You, were the, you saw it in the paper? or I think I saw it on Seek or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And um, I still can't quite believe I got the gig. Like, I actually have to ask Ian, why the hell did you hire me in the first place? I see him quite a bit, him yeah. and his wife, Tree. They're amazing supporters of me and my family, Yeah. especially in times of need when it gets hard and tough. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he gave me his. He gave me my, my first crack. And as you said, man, what an awesome opportunity. McDonald's um, is a sales and marketing engine room. It's a machine. Yeah. But um, And as a marketer, so we only had – Five people in the McDonald's marketing team, massive agency support. Yeah. So it's the, you know, you choose your models. Um, you know, some some organizations tend to now are insourcing agency uh, into their organization. McDonald's was very much outsourcing strategy, planning, creativity, et cetera. Uh, so we had about five of us. And, um, but you owned, you basically owned the P&L. You, you owned everything from product development to going into a restaurant and making sure that whatever you were developing was going to work for the in the kitchen because, you know, wastage is a big issue. Uh, the time to build those burgers is a big issue. Uh, the margin that you generate from the product is a big issue. Then you had to take it to market, price it, design the creative with the agency, design the media plan with the media agency, and then, and then take it to market. So it was really end-to-end accountability. The only thing... Yeah, your supply chain supported you in terms of buying and negotiating great products. Um, but so it was how, really... How, uh, so Ian taught you all that? Uh, mainly? Or? Yeah, he did. But he taught it in a way which was... Um, he gave you guardrails yeah. that you could work within, which meant that you could you know, have a real crack yourself and you felt like you owned it. But you couldn't run off the cliff. He'd grab you by the scruff of the neck before you did anything too stupid. And I'd try to do that a few times. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you had just this this awesome culture and machine behind it, you know. Um, oh, I went to the first McDonald's Christmas party. Everyone is festooned in gold rings for how many years they'd worked there, gold chains. I got big hugs, welcome to the Mick family. It's yeah. like being welcomed into the business version of Mafia, you know. It was like this, you are the family yeah. kind of thing. So um, it was really awesome, though. I loved it. Catch up in the blood. Yeah. Absolutely. And you learn so many things, you know, like uh, Ray Kroc, who's the founder of McDonald's, first thing he used to do is go into a toilet. And if the toilet was well maintained and looked after, he generally knew that the rest of the restaurant was uh, high performing because it's often the last thing that people would get to because it doesn't yeah. doesn't make them any money. Yeah, It's not normally visible to everyone. So attention to detail, but there was a, there's a rhythm and an, an operational excellence to McDonald's, which just works. And that's just why they're such a high performing business. Yeah, I was at DDB at the time, and there's a, there's a large number of staff who worked purely on McDonald's, and as you say, it was like to a certain extent outsourced. It wasn't it wasn't just creative and strategy. There were 
you know, people are twenty four seven. Yeah, and we'll go along to all the McDonald's um, conferences and um, uh, the execs where yeah. everyone got together. Now, so when you were there, you made some ads. Mm -hmm. Can you remember them? Yeah, like I can. Um, one of the products that I helped develop still on the menu today: the chicken McCheese in yeah. some restaurants. Um, Did you come up with a name? <laughs> maybe not, but yeah. yeah maybe not. Um, I remember my uh, a guy that I was working with at the time, James Woodbridge, mm -hmm. um, Hunger Buster, big new thing. We um, The Triple Decker. There was the value meal that was like, Jason, that yeah. did. Was that, was that that Jason campaign that was started at that time? Yes, at that time. Yeah. yeah. I didn't choose the name Jason, yeah. by the way, but it worked, right? That was a, I thought that was a great campaign that DDB came up with. It was brilliant. I, I can't remember um, who actually did it within the agency. I can't Do remember, remember any of the craze. I remember um, Gavin Sakimoto. Yeah. 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 I, uh, still, I still catch up with Gav. Gav, Gav was one of my uh, kind of key offsiders partner. We were both kind of young guns coming through yeah. who uh, didn't really know a lot and were finding our way. And yeah, um, still doesn't. <laughs> He was he was incredible. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if it was Gav or not. Who can't with that? Yeah, um, could have been. So after you were there for three or four years, yeah, and then a while. you know, um, and Marty O'Halloran, yeah, who was the MD at the time, um, he was always saying to me, "You're an agency guy." I think he might have been CEO, but he was CEO. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what is uh, it? What's the difference between CEO and MD? Uh, have I have I slighted him? But yeah, potentially, but I, I, I think it'll probably, it'll probably live with it. <laughs> um, we were actually talking about this the other night, but generally in New Zealand, with a, with a larger agency group, it tends to be like a group CEO, so so who's right. in charge of everything. So you might have a managing director who is like more in charge of, of purely uh, DDB advertising, whereas you'd have a group CEO in charge of everything. But like yeah, he, say, may, he may have been. I'm yeah. not sure, but he was... Um, he was a good ally of mine as well, and he yeah. uh, he said to me, "You're an agency guy." And so my wife, Rachel, who's far smarter and has much more ability than me, she went to Harvard to do her masters. Yeah. So we met in 2000, got engaged 2003. Yeah. And um, as soon as we got engaged, she got a scholarship to go to Harvard Law School wow. to do her masters. So I was ended up staying in Auckland, arranging our wedding with my mother-in-law for the year ahead of Must the wedding. Fun. It was. Well, the good thing is that I didn't really care a lot about any of the detail, so there was no issues in terms so of So you just said yes? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I said is I wanted spates as one of the beer selections, yeah. which was good. Yeah. And I wanted a chocolate cake versus a fruit cake for the wedding cake because I believed that no one eats the fruit cake. Everyone just, you know, right, saw that, that fish, That's though. a crucial error. <laughs> uh, fruit cake all the way. Oh, uh, yeah. no, chocolate cake for me. Yeah. And so, um, so that very little else. Uh, yeah. And then spates and chocolate cake. Spates yeah, and chocolate cake. They were, they were my only two requirements. Yeah. And then um, Rach graduated from Harvard, first in her class, Masters of Law, got her dissertation published in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Like, she'll hate me saying that, by the way, because she's very modest. But I, I feel very guilty for not having her on. You uh, should. She um, is much more, she's much better value yeah. than me. And then uh, when you graduate from Harvard, the normal path is London or New York. Yeah. And, um, New York was an awesome job. We would, we would like you to work 365 days a year. You get two weeks holiday, but we encourage you not to take them. 
And then London, which is the path that Kiwis normally take, and a lot of our friends were there. So we went to London, and Marty said to me, have a crack at agency side, and he lined me up a job at DDB London. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Which was short-lived because I hated agency side. I loved everything about it apart from the client. <laughs> that, that's quite a mission. So that was, that was um, BMP DDB. It was just DDB London then. Well, it was BMP that became. Yeah, so okay. I'm, I'm talking to the, the, the one, one of our two listeners who might be old school um, uh, London. Uh, when I, I grew up, it was BMP. But it was, it was a, a pretty good agency. So who was, who was Ph- there then? Phenomenal agency, actually. And it was um, all anchored in strategic planning. Yeah. That was what it was known for. Yeah. yeah. You know, so so the, the home strategic, of planning. The, the home of insight. And, um, geez, the... The MD, well, see, I'm not sure which one. Yeah. Um, but he was, they, they they were moving through them quite quickly, actually. I think yeah. his name was Paul. But I was so far down the layers, yeah. right? I think I was an account director. Really? So no. I wasn't even, I wasn't a group account director. But an account director is, is you know, it's not. It's good. Yeah, it's not bad. I was an account director on Dell. Okay. And I remember. Not, not, not the choice account. Of, like when you've got Volkswagen. Yeah. So I remember they just won Dell before I started and there was a guy called Kip Kesey who's uh, who passed away now. He was uh, an American phenomenal guy. He was head of Europe, Middle East and Africa, I think at the time. Anyway, he said to me, he's a real character, just such a good guy. He said to me, Jason, I'm, I'm not going to try an American accent. He said to me, Jason, I'm putting you on Dell. I'm going to be honest with you because no one else will do it. And when we, I, and I've, I called up and I'm apologising to anyone who works for Dell who's listening. Uh, and I, I called up and said, we've just won Dell. What's your advice? And they said, quickly run up to the top of the building and throw yourself off. Okay. So I had the job of going to the creative uh, teams and saying, can I just fit one more PC into the ad, please? That was basically my entire life. Yeah. So, um, you know, while everyone else was working on Emirates or, yeah. you know, Volkswagen. The sexy stuff. The sexy yeah. stuff. Here I was, was doing retail, which really had no, it was just churning out ads. Yeah. So um, I loved it. I saw the brilliance of an agency, right, the eclectic mix of creativity and smarts. The culture was amazing. Work hard, play hard. You know, the dynamics between the suits and the planners and the creatives and the production teams, et cetera. But I really struggled with stupid clients and I really struggled with not um, being close enough to the outcome. Yeah. So you never really, I never really felt like I owned the business outcome. And so it was an awesome time for me. I really enjoyed my time in agency. I think it made me a better partner of agencies because I could see what a bad client looked yep. like. Yep. But I knew I didn't want to be uh, I didn't want to be agency side from that that point in time, and I wanted to be on client side. And so, and then I went to Nokia actually, and hey, got to uh, get there. Uh, uh, just going back to DDB, who were the creative directors there? Then was it? I mean, this was this Jeremy was, Cragen. Yes. Yeah, you and Patterson. Yes. Yeah. Like okay. legends. Yeah. No, but this was like wankers. Uh, but, uh. <laughs> Hi guys. This is like seventeen years ago now. Yeah. Eight, you know, sixteen. Yeah, 16, 17 years ago, so a long time. And as I said, I remember bumping into them both, actually, and they're very nice people. Yeah. But, like, why would the hell, what's the what's the point of 
getting them to think about how do you fit the 19th computer into a full page ad. There's not a lot of point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, I can see. Uh, they've, I still catch up with them from time to time because we, uh, yeah, we had um, uh, caught up with them. I used to work with Ewan at YNR and then uh, uh, Jeremy and Ewan and I were all at a DDB Creative Directors Conference in Chicago at the same time, which all went very wrong. <laughs> we'll save that for off air. I remember one of the things, one of the things that stuck in my memory is they were pitching for a business and for the, um, whatever the entity is that runs the trains oh. in London or England. Oh, crikey. Yeah. British Rail. British there. Rail. Yeah. And um, they were pitching and the idea they came up with uh, to win the pitch was really creative, but it wasn't anything to do with an ad. It was to show that they got the customer. And what happened is um, they'd made it through to the final pitch and they had the decision makers coming in to make a call between two agencies. And they came in and they were in reception and the appointment was for nine o'clock. And no one met them. They kind of, the receptionist kind of went, sit there, didn't say anything. Five past nine, 10 past nine, quarter past nine, 20 past nine. And they were getting really pissy. And um, at 23 past nine, they came out and said, now you know how your customers feel. So it doesn't matter how many ads we run, no one's going to feel great if your trains are inefficient and making people late to moments that matter for them in terms of business meetings or family events. Like, I thought that was bold and brave, uh, putting the customers at the edge, but actually what a demonstration of really getting to the heart of the matter of how they're going to win hearts and minds. I thought it was great. It, it is very bold and very brave, uh, but I must confess, I'm pretty sure it was, it, it wasn't DDB and that. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that's quite a legendary Is it? London advertising story, and it was. Uh, oh, I got told about that story while I was there, so maybe someone was taking credit for it. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, it was probably about ten years before that. Oh, was it? Yeah. So it's well, see, well there known. you go. There's lot. There's masters of. Um, everyone that, thinks it's their own idea, it, it, which shows it's a good one. Yeah, if those two tried to pass it off as their own, someone did worse than I thought. Someone yeah. did at DDB London. Yeah. Oh, maybe they, they were copying the old one. So that yeah, that that must have been. You, you've done that. You've seen a really good agency from the inside, and you went over to um, Nokia. Nokia. Yeah. Yeah. Who um, have fallen on hard times recently, but at the time were probably forty-five percent market share. Yeah. Too big to fail. I think was the Time Magazine front page. Yeah. This was yeah. two thousand and seven, actually. Yeah. Amazing. I loved it. Fins are great. Awesome karaoke. Yeah. Oh. Well, I think if you went there in the summer, you'd have a good time. You went there in midwinter. <laughs> well, that's why they have to have ultra ultraviolet ray lights because it's so depressing in the winter. And that's why they have to drink lots of beer and go to karaoke. Well, I believe that Finns are the uh, happiest race, happiest nation uh, in the world. Yeah, we must be up one there. Of those. We, are, we are up there. Yeah, I bring it down a bit, but I think... <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we're you know we're top five or something. Finland tends to the Scandi countries tend to do really well. So you got over there a bit. You got to see a bit of Finland. Yeah, it was like um, <clears throat> I remember. <laughs> I remember actually showing uh, you know my lack of um, elegance in understanding uh, modern society. I went to my first time I went to Finland. I was meeting Jan, uh, who was my liaison to show me around yeah. the head office and I it was this massive cafeteria area and 
there was a guy sitting over in the corner and no one else there. And I kept on walking, wandering around for about five minutes looking for Jan. And then I said, oh, excuse me, do you know anyone called Jan? And he said, Jan, nice yeah. to meet you. Mm. Mm. Cringe. Wasn't the best first impression I could have made. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. But um, other than that, it, it was a good time. Amazing. Yeah, again, um, very marketing-led organisation, but did a couple of things wrong. One, in the face of competition, pivoted away from their core, which was um, simplicity and ease of use. So introduced a completely new operating system, so Series 6 onto Series 4. And so you had two different operating systems. It would be like going, okay, Android and iOS. And so depending on what phone you bought, it had a different operating system on it. That was one. And then secondly, missed the trend that a phone was becoming more than a phone. It was becoming yeah. a life remote, right? It was about music. It was about fashion. It was about entertainment. It was about, you know, just managing your life. And so Motorola came in with great design and Sony came in with music and Samsung came in at a price and simplicity level and kind of left Nokia really struggling actually. And yeah. um yeah, it's a really dis real disappointment. I left, like I was, again, you know, I was um, marketing director of the UK when I left, uh, but um, a lot of the brand work was done out of, you know, globally and uh, et cetera. So again, I just no, had to that, that, That's a big job. Yeah, it was great. It was amazing. Um, yeah, it was like a phenomenal job and big budgets and did amazing things and music concerts and great customer relationship management programs and uh, who was your agency then haygarth uh, uh, out of yeah they're in wimbledon great agency actually uh, we were their number one number one uh, client yeah stephen haygarth the the owner there they they were uh, very data probably ahead of their times very yeah. data and customer relationship management driven very focused on activation and and uh, experience driven so that was your first experience of the of the tech world, which you know I'm, I'm guessing mm. would prove um, useful in years to come. Did you join as marketing director or did marketing you manager? Around? Yeah, marketing manager and then marketing director and yeah. then left. Yeah. yeah, and where were you living in London? So I started uh, when we first got there. We lived in Notting Hill in yeah. a uh, one bedroom flat where our washing machine and dryer was in our bedroom, but nice. great location. Yeah. yeah, and then moved to Fulham. For a yeah. two-bedroom flat where I'm now a, I was a Man U supporter from a, from three, I know, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, Apologise in advance. So uh, not just because they were good, but because I was three years old. So this was when they, before they were good. But also I've got a real soft spot for Fulham now yeah. as well. And so um, they are struggling this year, which we, which we always do. And um, looks like we're probably going to get relegated, uh, which is unfortunate. But that's the the joy of supporting a team like Fulham is that you're always... <laughs> are you, you're swapping divisions? You are. So are, are they divisions. in the Premier League or in the Championship? Yeah, they're in the Premier League, the third. They've got, I think, uh, about four points uh, to Brighton. and um, Third from the bottom. Third from bottom, so they're in the relegation zone. Yeah, yeah. and the, near, the nearest club to uh, Fulham is... Um, Chelsea, actually. Chelsea, and the nearest club to from that is QPR. Ah, is it yours? That's my team. Is UPR. it? So, there you go. Yeah. Um, who, How are they going? Terrible. <laughs> terrible. They're, they're like mid-table in the, in the championship. Oh, no. I used to have a season ticket and uh, football. Uh, football in London 
as you've exper experienced, is maybe not as mental as it is in uh, you know, Argentina or Spain or, or Italy, but it's pretty all-pervasive. New Zealand is supposed to be a rugby-mad country, yet when I, in the days when I did go to work in the morning, no, no one ever really talked about rugby. No one talked about the, the super rugby that the All Blacks might get a mention if they won, but it, it's just not as all-pervasive as... Um, uh, football is to London. No, you're right. No, you're okay, right. I, I get in trouble with some Kiwis for saying that. No, no. no. Well, I think you have school, right. uh, So you went from um, Nokia to... TVNZ back home. So you did you have that lined up before you... No? Yeah, you know, so no, I um, I got headhunted actually um, for that. I got a phone call. Actually, every job since then I haven't applied for, I've, well, I've applied for because I've had to interview for it, but I've yeah. never actually applied for. I've always been called by yeah. the company. And so um, I got a call and did some uh, interviews. And we had, had you already decided to come back? No, no. We got, my wife and I got drunk in the Cotswolds on New Year's Eve and decided that we were going to take the job and go. So we called our family up and yeah. said, because the job offer came through and we we're like, well, we actually, it's probably two years earlier than we thought yeah. it would be. But jobs, you know, great jobs at great companies. Yeah. Few and far between. Yes. Yeah, so I came back, started TVNZ. Because they wouldn't have been aware of that much of what you're up to in Europe. So Not until the interview process. Yeah. 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 And and that was over Skype, was it? Or yeah. Whatever the version of it was then. Yeah. I'm not sure. It was a video conferencing unit. It wasn't over a PC. I had to keep on going to a um kind of a hide studio yeah. to um do the I think a series of four interviews. And then my boss, but like Ian, I've actually been quite lucky. I've had all these people who just want to take a punt on me. Yeah. Put me in roles beyond my ability, but smack bang in my enthusiasm, sweet yeah. spot. And um, Rick Ellis was the CEO of TVNZ yeah. when I was there. Was this, and uh, again, a good mate and mentor of mine. And um, Rick brought me in as head of marketing, digital and strategy. So I was on the exec team there. Probably one of my proudest things in my entire career was coming up with and launching TVNZ On Demand when I was there. Yep, which is still going and, and still going strong. Personally, I don't watch, I never watch um, live TV. I watch everything on on demand and I'm, I'm guessing I'm fairly typical. Yeah. Of, certainly of an urban New Zealander in that respect. That, that tradition of, of uh, kind of turning on to watch the six o'clock news and then spending the rest of the evening switching between TV1 and TV2 probably doesn't happen. No, but this is quite advanced. This is quite advanced for its time, right? Because this is 15 years ago. Yeah. And so um, the team and I, we were working on this and we were going, actually, people want to be their own programmers. Yeah. They don't want to be dictated to when they, ha when they have to watch something at what time and people get busy lives. So we developed this concept of, the strategy was inspiring New Zealanders on every screen and yeah. distributing our content far and wide, much to the resistance of the television team at TVNZ at the time, because they were like, this is going to destroy the core television business, spreading your content across more platforms. Yeah. All it will do is um, we'll lose control. It won't be additive. It'll be negative. And so it was a massive um, internal turmoil on it. And, also, at the time, to be fair, we didn't know what the business model would be. I was genuinely Googling, like, Channel 4 and going, what are they doing? And looking in the and uh, looking at ABC in the US and what are they doing? And what's Channel 7 doing in Australia? And no one had a similar model. Some were doing ad-supported or pay-per-view. Yeah. 
And so um, we were we didn't think that we were sophisticated enough to look at subscriptions. So we looked at ad supported and pay per view, and we we chose Shortland Street as the test case. So we we released Shortland Street episodes a day before they went to TV for two bucks. And then we tried it on ad supported and ad supported was 15,000 times more successful than pay per view at that point yeah. in time. Yeah, I, I can understand that. So what gave you the confidence to go into the rest of the organization to go, if, if we do this, they will come? Uh, well, I, it was two things. What's the worst that can happen? That, yeah, it doesn't often work with boards. But, but I'm just saying, yeah, like, you yeah. have a crack. Um, but it's also what customers were saying they wanted. They wanted so, more so control. So it was, it was uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, um, customer research, just going out. And yeah, we're just talking to customers and saying, yeah. um, any people are going, like, it really pisses me off that I get home at 10 past six. I've missed it. Yeah. And I've missed the, the first lot of the news. So Sky, by then, were, were doing, uh, already had that. They had that. They had that in the technology. Yeah, they had. They had. Uh, you could delay it and you could record it. Yeah, yeah. But not everyone had Sky. No, absolutely, absolutely not. But you, but you could, you could look at Sky and to a certain extent. You had uh, to record it and then you could watch it. it yeah. was They didn't have the. It wasn't the. Um, you could go along your all your EPG and just no. to choose what you wanted. If if you hadn't recorded it yourself, then you were stuffed. But it was it was taking what Sky had and going a whole lot further. But you know it was, was complicated because we had to renegotiate rights for multiple platforms, not just a TV platform. Mm. And and um, the television team, although resistant to it, supported it and negotiated the rights and and the rest is history. And I reckon, you know, TVNZ On Demand is now the anchor of TVNZ, in my opinion. It's the most important platform they've got. And and it's developed, you know, significantly since I was there. Uh, and, um, and they're doing a, doing a great job. I, you know, I, just, I do wonder... It was way before Netflix. Like we, we knew what we were doing way back then. We probably just weren't thinking big enough. Could have been the Netflix of New Zealand, to be honest, if we had a, had a crack. I'm not saying it could have been the Netflix of the world, but uh, we potentially could have done what Trade Me did in New Zealand and got a real stranglehold in terms of an entertainment subscription platform. But I would have thought that, that if, Netflix, if Netflix could be bothered to launch here, then they, they have the content. Now they do, and also the, the, you know, the investment behind it. So a lot yeah. of the Netflix, Netflix's success is uh, the investment they make in their own content now yes. versus having to rely on licensing it from other parties. And the um, Netflix spend a, a, a lot of um, focus on using their platform as research. Yes. Of finding exactly Correct. what people are watching, when they're watching, how, how they're doing it. and It's a data business. Were you able to do that? With, no, um, we weren't that sophisticated. Yeah. So yeah, you'd have um, basic recommendation engines. Yeah. You know, if you like comedy, you might like this other comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, again, this, this is 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. So it's a long time ago now. And that, that's one the team of, did a great job. One of your proudest moments, without a doubt. I yeah. think um, proud because it was um, embracing a trend well ahead of its time, but it was right. Proud because it was a really difficult thing to get through the organisation, and you had to really convince people of the vision. Did you have Rick Ellis on your side? Yeah, that yeah, really that, helped. Yeah, that would. Yeah, if your CEO is, if your boss is against <laughs> it, you're pretty much stuffed. Yeah, but he was, um, he was a big backer. 
yeah. of it as well. Yeah. So that, that was great. And then you went on to... MediaWorks. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't so successful. Yeah. So that was 18 months. Um, that were, was that CEO? Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing that drew me in. You know, um, wow, I think I might have been, I don't know, 33. And I was like, really? Yeah. Going to be CEO of a television company? <clears throat> and then I had I didn't really think through, but I just bought this for a multiple of 17 and it's owned by private equity that might not have the money to invest in the content and it might just be about reducing costs and not really caring about the creativity and the culture of the organisation. Yeah. So best and worst career decision I've made, um, I grew up really quickly in 18 months because I got exposed to private equity ownership and uh, how you have to really focus on how your numbers are your friend. You know, you hit your numbers, it creates a lot of freedom in an organization. If you don't, uh, you, you have a lot of problems. So I, I learned that. I learned um, how to run a business really efficiently. So um, amazing culture. Like, you know, the constraint that we were under made us think differently and do things in a much better way. Like we would turn up to Waitangi and TVNZ would have three big um, vans and camera crews and 10 reporters and we would have one camera, one cameraman and a reporter and when you watch the 6 o'clock news that night, you couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. And we would be high-fiving and having pizza back in the newsroom going – like nothing to do with me. It was all to yeah. do with the team. But it was like it was a really, uh, it created a, a a dynamic in that team, which was which was amazing. Mark Jennings was the head of news, an incredible person. He had people like, you know, Mike McRoberts and John and Hillary and yeah. those guys. It was a real like it's impossible to describe the culture at the time uh, when you feel like you're under attack and being constrained, but you know you're in it together. It um, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I, I did play a significant role in that, in that I uh, presented an advertising segment on what was the morning show called with Oliver Driver and uh, was that after or? your time? Oh, it's Sunrise or Sunrise? Yes. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think that that actually caused the demise of TV three um, as a whole. <laughs> never, never been the same since, but it, it was a bit of fun. So eighteen months, a lot of learning because you don't. Uh, what's the phrase? A smooth sea does not a sailor make. Yeah, correct. Right? You've got it's got to have. Yeah, I just you know I made that I made that call because I got attracted to the CEO title. Yeah. And I downplayed the actually the substance of the decision. So it was a poor. It was the best career call and and, and worst career call. Yeah, at the same yeah, time because you went a bit early or you made the wrong. I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. Um, it was the wrong choice moving going into an uh, into a business which. Um, probably didn't have the means to back a bold strategy. Pri private equity is not always the easiest bedfellow from my experience. No, definitely not. But I've got private equity owners now and they're awesome. Of course, these ones are. Uh, are well, and I, and I promise you in 10 years' time on the next podcast, I'm not going to be saying I was lying to you then. But they are genuinely great. They are backing a strategy. It's a business that has been underinvested in for five to 10 years. And now uh, we're making the right investments, which is great. I uh, would we'll just have a quick pause there because I'd see, would you like another? Uh... Yeah, that'd be great. 
You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. So after MediaWorks, Media yeah, uh, you went to Telecom at the time, yeah, which became later became Spark. Spark. So uh, Simon Muta. Yes, was my CEO. CEO, that yeah, yeah. So I got brought in by a guy called Alan Gordy, who was um, running the consumer and SME division yeah. as chief marketing officer. Yeah. So I came in as CMO, and then I did that for a couple of years, and then did the telecom to Spark change. So uh, in terms of agency, just getting a little slice of advertising back in there. So you're yeah. working working with Sarches. Yeah. Yeah. Nikki was the. Um, Nikki, MD. Nikki Bell? Yeah. 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 She's and, amazing. And um, who, who was running it creatively? Uh, well, Corey was the... Yeah, um, Corey Chalmers. Yeah. yeah. Corey was the my kind of main creative partner. Yeah. Um, and did you get any good ads out? Loads. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It, yeah. Like, um, actually, one of my favorite that we did when I was there is everyone else's least favorite, which is Giganeer. Really pissed a lot of people off, but I loved it because it was so unlike telecom. It was a rap song about unlimited yeah, broadband. Yeah, I, I, I remember it. Yeah, well, this, that's that's a sign of good advertising, right? Even if you love it or hate it, it got cut through. Uh, I, I hated it. I, no, no, no. At the at the time, I thought that I thought whatever Spark did was high, was high profile and had a lot of money behind it. So, so this was telecom. Okay, well, so uh, like so even, whatever. Yeah, uh, you know, the largest telco. It, um, in New Zealand did was was high profile and expensive and pe- people would have an opinion on it and um, often go, I I hate the new ad, but after a while I go, oh, actually, you know, it's, it's grown on me a bit. No, I, I, I thought it was memorable and, and had cut through and got got the point across well. Yeah, well, I'd so, love to say that um, my favourite ad same- I did at uh, Telecom was Father and Son. Yeah. Because, you know, like, yeah, holy yeah. crap, like, yeah. you know the holy grail of advertising type stuff. but And there was a lot of pressure uh, on the marketing and agency, you know, and uh, KR's a yeah. pretty b- big force. That, that's Kevin Roberts, folks. Kevin yeah. Roberts, yeah. And so, um, you know, you have the weight of history and iconic creative advertising, some of the best, you know, spot. Yeah. Um, anyway, long story short, um I'm uh, really, really proud of the partnership. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it, it, it's an interesting thing in the uh, the creatives are um, continually producing, hopefully producing ads throughout the year. So if they if one comes out that isn't particularly loved or or um, successful, they can brush it under the carpet and go, well, we've done all these other ones. Whereas if you're the client and you're only producing ads for one. Um, brand, uh, if you like, to have something fall over is potentially disastrous and you can end up having making some a um, lot of excuses to the board and end up losing your job. So the, the Pink Fist Telecom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was the previous CMO before I started. Of course it was. Yes. Who's also a good mate of mine, Kieran Cooney. Yeah. He's, um, uh, he's a, he was the marketing director, well, chief customer officer at Foxtel. Uh, until recently, and he's yeah. now just just joined the Vodafone TPG merger in uh, in Australia. He's a great creative leader. I I don't I don't know him, and I remember when that happened. It it seemed a bit unfair. It was like blood in the water, and people were coming up with opinions. From you know that the disappointing thing 
was it, it was blood on the water internally at Telecom. Yeah. And that was, I think, um, reflective of the culture at the time. It wasn't blood, like the insight, which I wasn't part of it, but I would imagine that the yeah. insight was how much these sports people are giving up and sacrificing to get an outcome, win a you know, Rugby World Cup. Hmm. Can you create a movement by getting New Zealanders to give up or sacrifice something that's important to them? Yeah. You know. Um, oh, I'm that, not. I'm not. Yes, and I've, and I suppose they've gone to. We've got a. We've got a spectrum yeah. of things that you can give up, New Zealand, and let's go to the extreme. Well, maybe one of the extremes, and so um, that's how that played out. But I don't. I think you're right. Blood on the water. But the worst thing for me is I think the blood on the water was from within the organisation. Uh, in case listener, you're you're not entirely familiar with the story. There was a campaign. Um, around the World Cup, which was uh, the idea being that um, abstain for the game, so have don't have sex, uh, and it was released. It was I, I, I doubt it. I don't know. I doubt it was leaked, but it came out before it went to air, and it went straight to the the press, and the press leapt on it and went because they're just looking for a story, and and more interesting to the press then, uh, here's an ad that we love, isn't it great? It's more interesting to go, oh, my God, what have these guys done? Sean Fitzpatrick is driving a car with a pink fist on the front of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the right, there, there was a legal inquiry into how it got leaked. Yeah. Did they, because I think I got rung up about that by, I can't remember if it was a lawyer or somebody, uh, someone would have had my email who was, thought of as maybe had done it and therefore had I think I'm sure they ran out hundreds of people and you know had had anything to do with me which it absolutely didn't but yeah I'd, I I I you see I wasn't that close to it. I just thought it was um maybe reflective of the culture at the time yeah definitely wasn't what I experienced in the culture when I was there under Simon yeah but um yeah uh they but for the grace of god um <clears throat> correct so it, it, it was a good time overall and learning a lot and you enjoyed the the, um, the tech side. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, um, Nokia loved it. it. There's a little story on this one, actually. So, uh, you know, when I went from DDB to Nokia, because uh -huh. um, I'd been working at McDonald's, uh, when I decided to move to client side, I had two job opportunities came up. One was the marketing director of KFC, yeah, which was paying £60,000 a year. And one was marketing manager of Nokia, which was paying £40,000 a year. And I really liked the idea of technology, but I was like, it's £20,000. It's a lot yeah. of money, you know? And so my wife gave me some great advice at the time. She said, what's the ultimate job that you would want that if you got, you would die a happy man? Yeah. And I said at the time, chief marketing officer of telecom, because yeah. it was this iconic New Zealand brand. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, wow, the advertising they did was brilliant and I'd really enjoyed marketing. And she said, well, which role do you think would get me there? And I was, well, actually, you know, KFCs, it's a retail, retailer and rhythm and et cetera, and fires out lots of ads, but Nokia is technology. Not sure. So I called the telecom head office reception area yeah. and said, can I speak to the chief marketing officer, please? And they put me through to Kevin Kendrick, who was the chief marketing officer at the time. Yeah. 
who's now the CEO of TVNZ. Yeah. And Kevin answered the phone and I said, hello, I'm calling you from London. You don't know me. We've never met. I really need some career advice. Have you got a minute? And he listened to my story and he said to me, Nokia without a doubt. If you want my job, take the Nokia role. That, and so I did. That, that is a, a great story for two reasons. One, that, that he actually answered the phone and did it and that the number of times that if you want to speak to someone, they will speak to you if you're exactly. doing it a different way. The other one is, I think, strategically, strategically, I don't know if that's the right word, but within your life, if you are faced with a crossroads and you don't know which to do, work out what your end goal is. And once you've worked out what the end goal is, go, well, which, which one of these is going to, which one of these is going to bring me closer to that? Uh, it was from my wife gave me that advice. Yeah. It's bang on, I think. She seems to have been quite a strong influence throughout your career. My mum... My wife and now my daughter, very strong influences on me. Strong ladies. Yeah, very strong woman. And my grandmother. Yeah. Okay, we see, we see a pattern emerging. There you go. Uh, and from there, you got a phone call going, oh, hey, why don't you come over to Vodafone? Yeah, it was hard, actually, because I'd been at um, Spark for seven or eight years, and I'd, I get bored. My personal view on career is that if you're in a job for more than two years, you're starting to plateau. So I think yeah. first year of a role – you're giving the organisations normally giving you more, so you're it's you know you're learning. You're learning. Yeah. Second year, it's about even. Year three, you're probably giving them more, and then it's when you need to find the next opportunity to lift again. And I was really privileged at Telecom to Spark. I had the chief marketing officer, and then I was given a broader commercial remit as a GM, and then Simon made me the CEO of half the business. Yeah. The MD CEO, he was managing director, I was CEO, etc. There you go. <laughs> and so CEO of half the business. And um, you know, when you you're there for a long time and I believed in it and did it some well, my teams did amazing, some amazing things in the telecom to spark. Didn't really feel like it was in your DNA. Yeah, you know, I mentioned before that my wife and I thought we'd come back from London a little bit earlier than we wanted yeah. to. Yeah. Um our kids were young, or still are quite young, and we thought, well, should we go overseas again before Sam hits high school? Because we've Everyone we've talked to said you have to have your kids settled before they get into third form or year nine, I think it's called now. And Vodafone called. So they have a list of people in different markets who are a pain in the ass, who are doing stuff that's making it difficult for them to succeed. And every now and then they have a conversation with them about whether they'd like to come and work for them. So they called me up. Interesting and, strategy. Yeah, and um, and said, look, we'd like to meet with you. They flew me to Hong Kong. So this is Vodafone Global. Mm. Yeah. Flew me to Hong Kong, so... So, I, so if, if I can ask, well, you don't have to answer, but how did, how does that go with um, uh, Spark? And you go, oh, I'm just off to Hong Kong for... Didn't tell them. Oh, they, they <laughs> I, was, I was away for 48 hours. But New Zealand is so small, you'd, you know, you'd run Get into plane on the and, flight and... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Didn't run didn't didn't, to anyone. Didn't know, maybe... All right. I could. I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I had a story. I was going to an Ericsson conference or something. I'm not sure. But um, Simon knew that uh, you know I'd been there for a while and what was next, and I was getting itchy feet and felt yeah. like I'd accomplished a lot. And because um, the only other job would have his. been his, yeah, yeah, and yeah. He's probably kept quite happy to see the back of you. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He was much. Yeah, he, there's no. He was. I was no threat. Yeah. So met with them, and then long story short, they said, "Hey, we really like you. Come and do a job in London." for us and come over for a few years. Yeah. Russell Stanners, who was the CEO of Vodafone, 
has been had been there for 13 years at that point in time. Um, we're looking at doing an IPO, and he'll settle the IPO. And no guarantees, but maybe maybe you can come back. And I wasn't sure about coming back to Vodafone because I was like, I don't want to jump across straight away. I, you know, feel like you're going from Fulham to Queens Park Rangers. Yeah. And how does that go down? You know, I don't know. So, but I was much, it was much easier for me to go to Europe. Yeah. Because one of the questions I actually had was uh, specifically about this. Hmm. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, which, which was, did you spend that time with Vodafone in London? Was it kind of gardening leave? No, they weren't me, man. Like my, my for, so. But, you, we were, but did you have to do it because you couldn't go straight to Vodafone here because of your restraint of trade? So yes, but the and first intention was I was going across there for three or four years, yeah. and we were going to come back to New Zealand no matter what when Sam was going to third form, yeah, with no guarantees of coming back. But I was kind of relatively okay with that, and I'd, I thought I'd find a job at some point in time, and what a life experience, you know, working for Vodafone in, in Europe. So uh, we'd rented the house out, sold the cars. Rach was a partner at Bell Gully. She'd resigned yeah. from her job. The car, the dogs were going on the on the on the plane. Had a massive leaving party, all sorted. The kids, we went to we went to uh, the kids were enrolled at the Herodian School um, in London. Yeah, and they did we did, they had to do tests in four different schools to get into different things, etc. So we put them like through a lot of stuff and uh, to make our life in London. The day of our leaving party, so it was 10 days before we were about to go, I got a phone call from Vittorio Kalau, who was the group CEO at the time. He called me at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. It was a five-minute conversation. It was Jason, Russell was decided to leave because the IPO was not going ahead. Congratulations, you're now CEO of New Zealand. <laughs> so I had to go down and say to Rach, it wasn't even a would you like to. It was you are, this is what's happening. But we know you've got a restraint of trade for six months. You can't operate in New Zealand and Australia. Mm. Come across to Europe. We will, um, you know, bring you up to speed on all things Vodafone. Leave your family in New Zealand. I was like, well, I'm not going to leave my family in New Zealand. Quite like them. Yeah, quite <laughs> like them. And um, you come across. So long story short, we had a fake leaving party, fake speeches, uh, you know, farewell for years. Only Rach and I knew that we were not going for years. Couldn't tell the kids because, of course, the, they'd, they'd, they'd leak it. <laughs> and then we got to um, got well, to London. Make a difference to that, that age, like six months, four years. It's a long time. Yeah. And we, uh, as when we got there, we said, "Hey, kids, you were only here for six months. You're not going to school anymore. You're just on holiday." They were like, "Hooray!" <laughs> and Rach and the kids travelled around Europe, and I travelled around all the different Vodafone markets. So I went to. 13 different markets in six months. So, you know, Germany, Italy, India, so, so South Africa. What, what happened when you got there? You, 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 like, they, made up. Up, they made up a, a fake role for me. I was director of convergence yeah. and everyone was like, well, that's a bloody made up job. What are you really doing? And I said, I'm director of convergence. What does that mean? Converging. Yeah. But really, I was just going around all these different Vodafone markets, meeting with their executive team and getting a download on their strategy, the competitive dynamics, technology, what was happening. They're amazing, very generous, giving, just you know, helping me uh, create my strategic plan for Vodafone New Zealand for when I came back home. So presumably, that must it must be a great help to have Vodafone as a global organisation because you have all that learning. It's amazing from it, like COVID. Hit Italy first. I could call up the CEO of Vodafone Italy, Aldo. 
yeah. and say, hey, mate, you're 45 days ahead of me. What are you seeing? What are you doing? My CFO could talk to their CFO. And that meant like even in COVID, we started to do, uh, and everyone thought we were mad. We forced everyone to, we shut down the office. Yeah. Even before COVID had hit New Zealand. And everyone had 100% of people had to work from home to test out uh, our video conferencing, the licenses, the load. Have you got the right setup at home? You know, what other technology do you need? What happens with office chairs? Do we need to get them out or big screens, et cetera? What's the process for people? You send an email out to your teams and people come into work. If they try and get in, like what's the process for saying, sorry, you can't come in. If they need to get something, you know, anyway, all that kind of stuff. But that was on COVID, but on everything, you know, roaming or 5G rollout or customer relationship management. Like it's it's a phenomenal ability to go to 26 different markets and try and pull best in class from them what they what did what works well and what doesn't. Definitely, particularly when when your uh, main rivals and your rivals are don't have that mm. ability because with advertising agencies you kind of ha- you kind of have that. Um, you do and um, all the way around, and you can you can pick up stuff, but it's obviously not as sophisticated as the tech. No, um, in terms of learnings, uh, it's still it's still less about tech and more about relationships, though. You still can't beat like you know you still can't beat having uh, been out in the town with someone and had a few beers. No, I, I, and absolutely. having that relationship where you can call them up and say I'm in a bit of trouble here. What do you reckon? But if there's a new bit of tech that is going to come down to New Zealand, if it's already been launched in oh, Ireland. Of course, you can find out exactly. Well, and also how you can I talk. To, you can talk to your customers and say, "Hey, this is not bleeding edge technology. It's proven technology. It's been rolled yeah. out in market A, market B, market C. These companies are already using it. You don't need to be worried about it." Um, how is Vodafone New Zealand viewed in the in the Vodafone world? Is smaller, insignificant, or leading edge, or nice, nice? Nice guys. Differently now that um, what's gone through, it's morphed through different phases. So I think uh, when Vodafone first launched in New Zealand, it was seen as a innovator and market leader. It was seen as breaking new ground, uh, trying new things, and uh, often seen as the creative and technology hotspot. Do do test things? Vodafone test things down here. Historically, had right because yeah. um, McDonald's used to do that a bit. Correct. Yeah, but then. Um, then Vodafone Group, it went through a, I think, a more difficult stage yeah. where Vodafone Group decided that it wanted to consolidate its focus into Europe and Africa and wanted to get out of India, Australia, and New Zealand. And so that's when the Sky merger came up, yeah. which didn't happen. Yeah. They looked at doing a trade sale and flicking it to someone else, didn't happen. Looked at doing an IPO, which was the kind of the last part that didn't happen. And um, that went over for a period of five or seven years. And... When you juice up a business for sale, you generally reduce investment because you want to increase the bottom line to yeah. get your highest reduce investment and costs with correct cost yeah. to get your highest exit price. Right? Yeah. You can do that for a year, but Vodafone New Zealand had been through had been doing that for seven years, and so when I joined the organisation, I found a company that had all of the strategic intent with none of the backing. Yeah all the stuff that Vodafone New Zealand wanted to do and that was within its DNA of the challenger, the innovator, that it had uh, been um, created, you know, the foundation had been created on, uh, had been the computer just kept on saying no at yeah. Vodafone Group because it was trying to optimise its exit price. Yeah. 
which is why the ownership change was a game changer for our business because we could develop a bold strategy but know that we've got owners that are going to fund it Yeah. versus developing a bold strategy and know that you've got owners that are going to say no. So 5G leadership or IT modernization or launching super Wi-Fi or you know, launching into uh, more sophisticated uh, ICT offerings or changing the structure and bringing in new capability. All of those types of things had previously been off the table for Russell and the team. Uh, but I can see the intent because I can look at the previous PowerPoint presentations. I can genuinely just change 2011 to 2021 uh, and uh, and do some of the stuff that he and the team wanted to do, but 10 years later. Um I just want to go back for a, a second yeah. to, to the, the more human element of you sitting at home and, and getting that phone call. From a, from a personal point of view, you've got, uh, you've got all these plans, you've got you know, the, the family organised, and a, a phone call like that, 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 you know, what was your initial thought? Holy Fuck. shit. Sorry, what am I going to say to Rach? Yeah. yeah. But you, but you didn't, at no point did you go, well, I don't know that I want to do it. You went, was there a moment's hesitation or was it, right, okay, this is what's happening? No, so the two people I spoke to, I don't think I've told this to anyone actually. Um, first person was Rach, my wife. Yeah. The other person is, uh, I got the call at 7am. I was at Simon Moosh's house at 10am. So my boss, who I'd already resigned to, yeah. to go to Vodafone yeah. group. And I said to him, this has happened can I have a chat to you about it? Um, and he he said to me, don't do it. And um, it wasn't don't do it uh, because he didn't want me to be a competitor. He said to me, don't do it. You're too good for the telco industry. You're a growth guy and the telco industry is about hard yards of cost efficiency and, you know, type management, whereas mm. you are an innovator you are more suited to a growth entrepreneurial yeah. area. He's probably right, but the thing that drew me to it, A, was first of all my wife going, that's awesome. Like how cool is it we're going to get to go to Europe for six months and then come back to the greatest country in the world, New Zealand, yep. A. And then B, my driver has always been about doing something incredible for New Zealand. I, first and foremost, passionate New Zealander and passionate Southlander. And I what it was rates, the other way around, but... Could Close. be. Yeah. And what Rach said to me is, you've got this organization that you think has probably been underperforming for whatever reasons, you know, uh, for a number of years. What an incredible opportunity to use technology to change the country. And that's what helped me move from Fulham to QPR more effortlessly Yeah, was actually the reason that I thought, shit, what a privileged position to be leading an organization like this at a time like this that enables, I know it sounds a bit, you know. If it's what you feel, it's what you feel. But it's what I feel, right? Yeah. I genuinely feel privileged that you can use technology to change people's lives, that you can ensure people can have access to connectivity that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford to, or that you can help businesses modernize and streamline and improve their cash flow and not go out of business. So you genuinely lose sight of that when you're doing your jobs, right? You know, because your day-to-day -day comes up, but... That was the thing that really drove me, like just a passionate and proud New Zealander and Southlander first and foremost. And so I think it was probably the only time that I defied Simon's advice because normally it's 100% right. So mentors have always 
always been important to you? Like, uh, say Ian and Simon? Yeah. Yeah, so I think yeah, it's interesting, right? My mentors, my grandmother, my mum, my wife, my daughter, my sons, and then Simon, um, Chris Quinn, who was my boss at Telecom. He's now at Foodstuffs, amazing, amazing mentor. Uh, Ian Sutcliffe at McDonald's, Rick Ellis, uh, Alan Gordy, who hired me. But, you know, there's loads of people in my life who um, who have been father figures yes. in a lot of way to me when you don't have a father. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that's interesting. Now, um, I've, I've got a question for you, uh, which I'll, I'll give to you. You might, you might not want to um, answer, which is um, what next? I've got, I've got a few other yeah. questions about other things, but, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, I'll, Answering that, that, that's fine. But I'll give you, I'll just take Monty out for a week because there might, might be some trouble. On the other hand, his dog provides a great source of comfort and security. That combination of new lung power is hard on the neighbours. So I've got, I've got a few uh, questions from uh, that, that um, people have asked me to ask you, though many of them may already have been answered. But you've had uh, an incredibly successful career and you're, you, you now have a, a really big and important job. How long have you been at Vodafone? Two and a half years. Two and a half years, which uh, you seem to be doing, you know, in, incredibly well at. What what ambitions are the um, are the left for you? If I go back to um, what I said, you know, Rach said, like, what's the the end goal? The end the end goal, and you go. Um, Again, it's an anchor on, I just love this country, love Southland. Yeah. I know it sounds, but it's how I feel. Um, so I have talked about politics. I was going to, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So um, the thing that makes me tentative about doing that is the two things, actually. One, the cost on your family. Which I, I think is such a, uh, holds back so many people and means that we don't get the the politicians that we could do with because they just don't want to necessarily go through that shit to but, subject yeah. their family to it right because you think about being a politician and your children being 14 or 15 at school and yeah. shit it's tough enough as it is with social media and yeah. that dynamic let alone your mum or dad being a politician yeah. and so that's 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 the, the number one yeah and and it's a massive burden on you as well like that's a you are i reckon politicians are sacrificing their family for their country which i think is incredible and i know they wouldn't see it that way but you have to make a choice and you don't you, you genuinely can't say that you would you'd spend you can you know, spend less time with your family if you were a politician i, th- I think it i think it depends on on the politician i think the motivations behind it I don't. Sometimes they're selfless, but sometimes they're they're, they're egotistical and yeah, maybe selfish. they are. But they shouldn't be in politics in that. In that. Well, the the problem the, the problem with politics is that it attracts people who shouldn't be in it. Yeah, uh, I agree. And and the, the 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 people generally, I think we've got. Again, the current prime minister, but I think she's doing a, a pretty good job. Um, but often the pe- the people who end up in that position are not ideally suited to be in that position which uh dare i ask which um party should you know you ever get more than tempted to well I, that's the, that's the be- that's a beautiful thing about me is like um independent yeah like i'm i'm center left and center right i i agree with like right <laughs> that i voted i would say for most parties over over the time uh, that of course I've been of your life yeah yeah of course of my yeah, life same, same so 
I couldn't give you a clear answer on that. The only thing I would say is that I would be, if I was going to go into politics, it would be with either Labour or a National, a big party. Yeah. Just because I would want to go on there to make change, and I think you need the the scale to create policy. Yeah. Being on the side, I would struggle struggle with that. Uh, I I think that that would be really interesting. But hey, you know that's that's your call. Yeah. So I, I, who knows? Um, who knows? It's very unlikely again because of the family situation. And I think there's also an argument to suggest, back to my first point around how um, we've managed to make the move from Spark to Vodafone, is I think businesses have a privileged position to make massive positive change in the countries they operate in if they choose to. And that's a pretty privileged position to be in. Uh, yes. You know, the uh, motivations behind companies are... Um, oh, I agree. Generally... Commercially driven. Commercially driven. No, without a doubt. Yeah. Shareholder driven. Yeah. Yeah. But again, if you get your numbers, then it gives you more freedom, I reckon. Yeah. Uh, but it, it comes down to it comes down to the CEO. It comes to the CEO, but also my chair, Marco, who's the CEO of Morrison & Co. and Infratil, Yeah. for a private equity investor who has been massively successful, you would not find a more passionate, New Zealander, more humble person who cares more deeply about this people in this country. And I think he's looking for enduring long-term next generational benefits. Yeah. So um, that's why I think not all private equity is the same. My experience of my of Brookfield and Infratil has only been extremely positive. They are long-term investors. They invest in essential services in the countries they operate in and they back them and they fund them. Uh, I, okay, I'm you know, willing to... Um, be open-minded? I'm more than willing to be open-minded. Uh, I'm a believer in grey. Um, so am I, if you can look at my hair. Well, it's uh, <laughs> that there's too much black and white. Yeah. And it, you know, the, it, there's pros and cons to, to most things. So I, w I will accept um, your um, proposition that not, not all private equity is evil. Yes. Now, a, a, a question that I that I'd like to ask, it's, it's kind of you know, my personal one, is how do you think you, you're... So you have, you've done no tertiary education? No, didn't go to uni. And how do you think that would have... How do you think your, your life and your career would have changed had you done that? Would, you, would, would it put you back, your whole career back three, <clears throat> excuse me, three years, or would it possibly have advanced you even faster? I don't think I'd be in the role I am now if I if I had of um, well first of all I'm not sure you go to be from being a teacher to CEO of Vodafone New Zealand it would be an odd path because um, my first because uh, we were done teacher training. teaching was to go to teachers training college yeah you know but a CEO is a, bit, a teacher it's a bit of a coach etc so in the DNA of it it's that's your job I don't know but I I, I don't have a, a you know you talk about grey <clears> yeah. You probably won't find, well, you know, my wife's not a doctor, but she's got a master in law from Harvard. Yeah. She graduated top in her class. Yeah. Extremely qualified. Yeah. Me, no university, but I've got massive work experience. So I think there's an argument either way, four years of university or four years of work experience, which is, which is, which is better. I think it comes down to the, uh, comes down to the individual. I, I think 
I have been lucky though that without a tertiary education, I have had people like Ian and Rick and Alan and Chris and Simon and Marco that have backed me yeah. along the way and have gone actually um, actions speak louder than qualifications. And so your track history of achievement, well, your track history of taking credit for your team's achievement means we'll give you another crack. Yeah, once you've gone in a way to your career, your uh, a tertiary experience or lack of it, whatever, becomes less and less important. But as, as it starts out, then... Yeah, I had a real hang-up with it on it, actually. When I was yeah. at TVNZ, I was really worried. I said to Rach, you know, I would need to do a master's... Um, MBA or something. Yeah, yeah an, M an MBA uh, on the side. And I talked to Rick about it, and uh, Rick, um, TVNZ, funded me to go and do a business course at Harvard. Yeah. And so I went across there and did an advanced management course at Harvard. And I learned a lot uh, with, you know, models, et cetera, that you can apply to business, et cetera. But the thing that really dawned on me is when I got there, I had this inferiority complex that I would be out of my depth and I wasn't. Yes. And actually I could contribute because I had life experience. Yeah. I could genuinely say what it was like to, you know, uh, wastage uh, in a McDonald's restaurant or the how important the margin was to uh, an owner-operator or uh, whatever. So, yeah, I think there's an argument both ways. Now, my wife and I will encourage our children to go to university. Yeah. We think it's a great social opportunity for them. You yes. build like, great relationships. I think I would probably have more structure than I do now. I'm Rachel's very structured and has a solid foundation. I'm least path of resistance, how fast can we get there? And sometimes the plate can come crashing on the ground uh, because of that. But I don't, I don't think there's a, it's whatever's right for the individual, in my opinion. Yeah, I, but you don't know. No. Uh, at, at that time when you're, when you're making that, that decision. No. Because, so if, if at that age, whatever, 18, 19, you've gone, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to teacher training college and, and right now you'd be you'd be a, a forward-thinking principal of a of a progressive school and be bloody delighted and, and if i hadn't if i hadn't gone to university god knows where i'd be i certainly wouldn't be ceo of vodafone but you know literally i don't like to think about it because <laughs> for me it gave me th it gave me three years to to grow up in yeah to grow up in to to think about things and have a look at uh, okay, you're not working, but you're having a having a look at life in a more theoretical yeah. sense, I guess. Let's not get too philosophical, but I I, I think that's um, that's really interesting. But I, I yeah, I, I, as you say, for, you, for your kids, you'll go. I think it's a good idea for you to go to college. Yeah, yeah. because it gives you an opportunity to find yourself a bit more. It gives you some structure to your learning. You build really strong relationships. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to um, run through some questions here. Uh, what advice would you give to people who wanted to be C a CEO? Is a CEO something that, I suppose it is, people go, you know, leave school? What do you want to do? Entrepreneur is what everyone wants to do. Yeah, I think so as well. I don't know if people want to be a CEO anymore, and especially in big organisations, um, I think the most the, the the best part in a big organisation isn't the CEO. It's probably one or two layers down where you've got the remit yeah. and the budget. It's probably that adult marketing manager at McDonald's. That's the best position to be in. I like think, that's where you get to do the cool shit. 
Okay, kids, adult marketing manager, <laughs> uh, McDonald's. Um, uh, Andrew said to me today, uh, Elon Musk's uh, satellites. Yeah, Starlink. Yeah. Is that is that a challenge or likely to be? No, I love challenge? it because um, the first uh, community groups that it will solve uh, connectivity issues for are the rural community, and I think that's bloody brilliant. Um, that's me. Yeah, I'm a I I'm a member of Farmside. Yes, which is an important division of Vodafone. Yeah, that. Um, uh, okay, listener, Farmside is broadband for people who basically don't have any cable connectivity. Is yeah. that a reasonable way to supply it? So when it's when it, it it's more expensive, when it's working, it's great. When it's not working, it's a... No, which is the tough thing, right? And yeah. um, connectivity has become such an essential service nowadays. doesn't matter where you're living. You oh, need oh, it. Oh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's massive. Um, and, uh, a bit late into the day, I'll just explain how this... Uh, uh, this chat actually came about. Jason sent an email to all Vodafone members, yes. or a v, an email from Vodafone, which um, Jason wrote a part of, which was, if you have any comments or questions, then send them to me directly. And being a, a mildly uh, cynical advertising stoke marketing individual with a lot of time on his hands these days, I thought, okay, uh, I've got a question. Let, um, let, let's see what happens. And I sent it off and I got a reply pretty promptly. It's a boring technical issue about Vodafone bills, which hasn't been solved, but there is an acknowledgement that it is an issue and hopefully it will be solved. And whilst I had uh, Jason's attention, I said, will you come on the podcast? And he said, yes. So I get a, so I send that email every quarter yeah. and I get about 500 emails back from our customers Yeah, <clears throat> and I respond to every single one. Yeah. Uh, and the team helps me fix them. Uh, yeah. And not all of them can be fixed. Like you've said, you know, uh, your problem is a result of legacy technology, which needs to be modernized, which yeah. is being modernized, but will take some time. So yeah. it's not a quick fix, unfortunately. Yeah, but it, but it, it has been uh, attended to. Yes. You, uh, you're a cricket fan as well as rugby. I'm sports fan, sports mad. I used to, I played um, soccer on Saturday mornings, rugby Saturday afternoons, league on Sundays yeah. in the winter, uh, touch rugby and cricket yeah. in the summer. Um, like, you know, again, when you're in Invercargill, you'd be squash, tennis, badminton, lawn bowls, touch rugby, like everything you can get your hands on. So uh, I love, I love my sport. The uh, Cricket World Cup when it was over here. Yeah. I um, remember, um, Grant Elliott hitting the six 20, at Eden Park to... You, you were there? Yep. I was there. I, uh, I go to a lot of sport. I've watched sport all over the world, and that, that was the best game I've ever seen. I agree. Dale Stain, two balls to go, hit a six. Probably like one of the happiest moments of my sporting life. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, it, was, it, uh, it was incredible. And then how disappointing was the final? McCullum... Yeah, you clean bowled. I noticed you shared that. You shared that because it was the final's over in like what was that the first ball of the innings? I think it might have been. It was like that like, was it. Bang, I know. Game over. Like, but that we'll always have that semi. Yes. You know, and then and then the the, the oh cricket world got final. Lords, God, because people think because I'm you know, seriously. I'm like, a pond that I was supporting. I was supporting New Zealand. I was up at three o'clock in the morning. Trent Bolt stepping on the boundary. Uh, the ball ricocheting off Stokes' bat, like you know, seriously, come on, who like, I don't know, if you didn't believe in God before then, you probably had to after that. It, it, Someone was on England side. 
But which would have been better? Uh, New Zealand to have won that, or with the most boring World Cup final ever, and everybody going bloody Kiwis didn't deserve it because they scraped through. They they played in some in- incredible games in that. Yeah. Or that which will go down as one of the most incredible finishes to a game of cricket ever, and we came out on the wrong side. I of know. It, but. I still I think so. I agree with you. I still think the best end would have been. I thought Martin Martin Guptill deserved to win it for them. He had had a tough time. He's a premier batsman. He came yeah. in in the in the you know whatever they call it the final over or the super over or whatever yeah. it was. I don't know. It was, it, 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 was uh, quite, it was quite extraordinary. Sorry, non cricket fans. Uh, I got a question from Mark Lorigan. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> hey Mark. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, not the term I'd use, but he'd like to know what your favourite Happy Meal toy was. Just... <laughs> <laughs> of course he would. Uh, yeah, so probably don't answer that. Um, don't ask the adult marketing Caroline manager. Caroline wants to know how he made a jump from marketing to business more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's uh, I mean, that may have been uh, answered in, in in the in the course of the the whole chat, but uh, it's something I I joined the Institute of Directors. Because I thought it would be useful. When I, yep. Um, back in the days when I was um, running, or at least co-running an agency, and they don't teach any marketing. So you get right. You're going to be a director. You need to learn about governance and oh, really? this and that. There's there is no marketing. It's and I uh, actually, you know, sent them a note, complained about it. I think um, I think you'll see more CEOs uh, coming from a marketing background. And from a creative background, because very customer centric. Yeah. Um, no matter what business you're in nowadays, uh, there's d- someone doing something similar to you, and so it's about really understanding the customer, differentiating. I don't know. But do they have the respect of the CEO and the chairman? Um, well, I think it depends on. It depends, depends on, on the business. Yeah, that's exactly right. Depends on the business. I would like McDonald's, a hundred percent. A lot of uh, MDs or CEOs come through McDonald's because it's a very sales and marketing-led yeah. uh, business. If you want to be a CEO, then you have to take a role in organiser, and you're a marketer, you have to take a role in an organisation where marketing is genuinely seen as a creative and commercial engine room Yes, in the organisation. If it's just seen as the, uh, the ads, it's not right. It isn't, but I, I guess it is. Ma- Martin Brown wants to know what mobile... Mobile plan you're on. I'm on uh, the endless sixty dollar plan, uh, and I've got two companion plans, three companion plans now. So my wife, my son Sam, and my son William. Um, my daughter does not have a phone yet. Is that is that okay, Brownie? Um, the answer there. Uh, Dave King, a uh, Dave King. You know Dave? Dave? Yeah, I do know Dave. He's Dave, a great guy too. Dave wants to know what the best restaurant in Invercargill is. Uh, well. Lone Star is my go-to because of the or the the ribs, like yeah. a dozen ribs. I just love love, Do you the love Lone ribs. Star. Oh, love ribs. Love ribs. Oh, what, uh, we got some ribs last night at that place in Greylin. That, that that does ribs and nothing else. You have to try it. It's called Cole, Cole C O L E. Is it awesome? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll be there. Do it. Um, but if you are in Invercargill, the best place to go is you have to go to the Copper Kettle. You have to buy cheese rolls, and you have to buy an ice cream milkshake with the you know their longest you know, the yeah, giraffe yeah, yeah. on the side of it, 
So uh, the, that's the best thing. You have to go and buy cheese rolls and uh, and a, and, a milk, and a milkshake. I have actually been in Invercargill, and I, I could have done with that advice then. Cause there you was... go. Ben says, you've made direct customer contacting and engagement hallmark of your style, as we talked about. In agencies, we always talk about being close to the customer. Do you think we deliver? What have you learned about how clients and agencies should be engaging with their consumers? Um, I, you know, going back to that point where um, I think the best agencies genuinely need to be a uh, own the outcome with the client. Sometimes I feel like the two removed from the commercial results that you're trying to achieve. It's why I said, you know, I struggled with agency side because I felt like you weren't close enough to the action. It kind of stopped at one yeah. point in time. So, as, as a client, yeah. how do you differentiate between agencies? Uh, creativity is the first thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you want to see who has a track record of being able to identify a unique insight that differentiates you from the competition. Yeah. And then you execute it brilliantly creatively. Um, and now in the telco industry, two examples come to mind. One locally, the two degrees launch, I thought was yep. brilliant. Yeah. You know, you've been bloody ripped off for years and we're here to change things. I thought that was bloody no, great. This is uh, the TBWA with Reese Darby. I thought that was just outstanding. Uh, and then O2 in the UK. I yeah. love the fact that O2 and the DNA is, uh, they picked up that connectivity is essential for life. And what is essential for life? Oxygen. Yeah. Therefore, it, everything that they did in terms of their go-to-market was about, you know, essential connectivity because we are essential for life. I just love that it was in everything they did. So anyway. When an agency is presenting uh, to you, and it may, may not happen so much these days, yeah. but in the past, when they go, here's our cred stake, and they go through it, what, at what point does it become interesting? When I'm nervous, when I'm going, holy shit, like really? Do you think we could really do that? So that's a, so so that's the that's the work, that's yep. the and there is, it's funny that that for good marketers and creative directors, I think that bit that makes you, because as a creative director, you actually have the same thing. You have team teams coming in to present work, and most of it, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. Uh, but that bit where you sit up on your chair and go, ah, yeah, that's, exactly. But in, 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 before you get to that stage, in terms of agency creds, most agencies, I believe, say the same thing about themselves. They yeah. say that we do this and it's and it's kind of like, yeah, ho-hum, ho-hum, yep, okay, tell me something I don't know. Tell me something different from what other agencies do. So, yeah, so well, in that instance, I'd look at the team. Yeah. One of the best teams I've seen was James, Brent Smart, and Wurtho at, yeah. uh, like, at, at the planning, yeah, at Colenso. So you had the, you know, the, the suit, the planner, and the ECD yeah. in harmony. Yeah. Uh, so I'd be looking for that team dynamic. That was pretty incredible to be a part of, to be honest. But did you know them individually beforehand? No, so, no, so you, is it just you, by reputation? Then? Well, you 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 hear hear about them like were yeah. though, yeah, incredible. Were though? Oh, Nick, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, yeah. You know, so you hear about them reputation, but then you see them in action, and then you see the dynamic between them. Yeah, and they're finishing each other's sentences, and there's no. You're going to you're gonna say no, there's no ego, but they're just very good at hiding it. Well, that was they, you have to have an ego, right? Yeah. But they they do a brilliant job of hiding it. Ah, here we go, from Greg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vodafone is strongly rumoured to have had a bit of a poor culture for a while mm. in terms of mental health and feelings of safety and efficacy. Yep. What have you learned about how to reset a company's culture? My biggest challenge coming into Vodafone. Yeah. Like, good people before me, um, but there was a bit of a culture of fear, fear of failure, fear of admitting that your program was off track. Hmm. Um, and that meant that a lot of things that were going wrong in the business were hidden. Yeah. Um, and so how do you unlock that? Uh, you have to start by making mistakes and owning up to them yourself and being open and transparent and laughing about it. You have to celebrate people pushing the boundaries and not working out and going, that's okay. Uh, but also when someone's a complete fool and does something that was just idiotic and it's have a massive impact on a customer, still show that it's not good enough and we won't put up with it. It's getting that balance right. It's the cultural challenge, you know, as I said, two and a half years into it. The first year was the ownership change. So I really feel like I've had a year and a half in the seat to get my head around it. And I'm still trying to unlock the capability within the organization that I know is there and make them as bold and brave and risk-taking as they should be. And uh, still a long way to go. But it starts with me, and it starts with uh, my own leadership team. And uh, and we've still got a long way to go as well. That's it. Awesome. All right, all that last right. question is like, it's a whole podcast in itself on culture. I, I think I said to you before we started, there's a um, my mate Clive, who's now the CEO of Les Mills, we used to work together at Spark. He's an awesome guy. He sent me um, Toto Wolf podcast on uh, empathy over engineering, which um, was basically about that. You'd think that winning Formula One, I think he, they won seven consecutive years. Yeah. And they ask him what it, you know how if expecting the answer to be about technology and that those you know had a faster car. Yeah, yeah. But it's all about people. Yeah. Uh, and from um, my own point of view, when we started um, Barnes, Catman, Friends, the, the the number one priority for me, for the agency, was that it was a place that I like going to work at. Not What a great call. And that it's a, in a sense, it's a very selfish call, but it's uh, I, I kind of hoping that if it's somewhere that I like going to work, that that everyone else does and that 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 was more this is how you spend most of your waking life is at work so make it somewhere that you want to be and 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 how quickly it can change when you put just one bad person into that environment right it can Uh, make a massive difference uh it it does uh on on a couple occasions that that um i've been aware of that person partly due to things that that we have done has turned around and that oh, right. and that is incredibly um rewarding rewarding yeah i like that that's a much again um that thing i just listened to they said it's better to have a hole in your organization than an asshole 
but yours is a much more po- positive spin, which is how rewarding it is to turn that person around. Or yeah, yeah, or, that's cool. Yeah, that uh, that was uh, Jason. Thank you so much. It's it's been great chatting. Thank you for being uh, so open, and best of luck with uh, whatever you got up to in the future. We will be watching with interest. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You're listening to Truth and Soul. Okay, thank you. That's all we've got time for now, as you'll no doubt be relieved to hear. Uh, On the off chance that you like what you're hearing in the podcast and want to hear some more, please force your friends to have a listen too. Um, And if you feel the need to share that, drop me a line at paul at truthandsoul.co.nz. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you have a listen to the back episodes. There's not a dud one there. Well, I don't think so anyway, although, of course, I may be biased. If you don't like any of them, after you've listened, uh, drop Jonathan at Franklin Road a line and tell him what I'm doing wrong. Um, He always does. In the meantime, thanks to the good folk at Franklin Road Studios who do the actual work for the podcast. Stefan, Shane, Sydney, Vanessa, James, and, of course, Jonathan. Subscribe for further podcasts, it's all free. And now, here's some wonderful music. Sound. I want to. The anxious toss and turn.